0: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet this week's panel. Alex Andreu is a political commentator. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Uh, the director of BBC News, Fran Unsworth, has just announced that she's leaving at the start of next year. We don't know why. Uh, why has this annoyed many people at the BBC?
1: Unsworth is a proper BBC person, you know. She's been there for decades. She's risen through the ranks for 40 years, been in uh, most senior positions, and she sits on the executive board, which is actually quite important. The only real BBC up through the ranks person that sits on the executive board. So I think there's a sense that an insider is being pushed out. I mean, the reasons, like you said, we can only speculate. It's fair, I think, to speculate considering recent outbursts by Davy and uh, and Gibb that, you know, she's not being pushed out because she's a toe-the-line Johnsonian
0: Are we sure fan. she's being pushed out? Because I must admit, in the initial reports, it seemed that she was leaving voluntarily just because, you know, she's been there for a very long time, uh, but that people were therefore annoyed at her timing. Not that she was being pushed out, but that she was leaving at a time which that would open up yet another politicised appointment process at a time when we've already got that, we've already had that, and uh, BBC Chair, and we're having it with Ofcom.
1: I think a lot more will become clear once the appointment of Head of News is announced. If Jess Brammer en- ends up getting that or not getting that, I think that will shed quite a lot of light. I don't buy the coincidence of this timing. You know, with all this churn going on in the BBC, with budgets being slashed, with her being asked to axe 500 jobs, with the whole rigmarole over the the Jess Brammer appointment, I can't look at that and think, oh, it was just her time to retire. So
0: people that you would like to find alternative employment, Liz Truss and Kwasi Karteng <laughs> have dropped major climate commitments from the Australia trade deal to get it over the line, which of course comes weeks before COP26. Hmm. Is this the shape of post-Brexit trade
1: to come? And months after the deal was announced as done, with much fanfare, and it, it looks as if it's not done at all. Um, New Zealand is also ho- holding out, we found last week. Without support from those two, the UK can forget about joining the CPTPP. And so I think it drives home the notion that we have turned ourselves into a supplicant state. Not only have we lost the clout conferred to us by being part of the EU, but we now are so desperate for quick deals, for wins for the Brexit side of the government, that we are a supplicant state to even much smaller economies. I mean, it's astonishing Minnie Rahman is campaigns and comms director at
0: the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hiya. New research from UCL has found school teachers are noticing a rise in far right and Islamophobic views among pupils, and ninety percent of those surveyed said they'd heard conspiracy theories circulated in school. Do you think this is coming mostly from parents or peers? At least what's your instinct?
2: I don't think it's either or because information flows, doesn't it? I mean, I remember I read somewhere that schooling can have more of an impact on your personality than your family can because you spend so much more time with your peers in your adolescence, especially. I mean, that might also be a conspiracy theory because I can't remember the the source, (laughs) but that's something that I've heard. And I think the thing is, Conspiracy theories have always circulated. They're not a new phenomenon. And I'm sure we can all remember some kind of conspiracy theory from when we were children. But I think the difference here is access to information and the ability to discern whether what you're reading or not is true. And we've all talked about before on this podcast, how hard it is for for even adults to determine whether or not they're reading something that is from a a correct source. And then add on top of that, the fact that, that you're a child. And then when it comes to the kind of the far right, you know, then you have the additional layer of, or additional problem that some of what you do read, even when it isn't a conspiracy and even in you know, reputable sources, reiterates those narratives from the far right. So it's kind of like a double assault, I think.
0: Um, and there's no provision to counter the spread of misinformation in the Tories election bill, which is currently in Parliament for its second reading. Do you think the government is just still failing to, uh, to take this seriously?
2: Well, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I mean, I think that misinformation is important for a populist government in a lot of ways. you know <laughs> you don 't want people to know the facts or the details because that might destabilize your ability to to retain power i mean the whole point of the election bill is to rig the polls, and the way in which they're doing that is by purposefully spreading misinformation about election fraud. So I don't think you can really expect a government relying on misinformation to also tackle it properly.
0: (laughs) Um, Our guest this week... I don't know why I'm laughing, it's awful.
2: Um,
0: (laughs) Our guest this week is a former political advisor to the Labour Party and for the former Prime Minister of Australia. He's now a senior advisor at the comms agency BCW and a regular guest on the Institute for Governments podcast, Inside Briefing. John McTernan, thanks for coming in.
3: That's great. It's great to be here.
0: You caught a bit of sort of flack from, from, from allies last week for tweeting in support of the World Transformed, a momentum-related event which runs alongside Labour's party conference. And you also said you couldn't imagine Labour gaining power without a broad church, which contains people like you, but also MPs like Nadia Whittam, Clive Lewis and so on. Do you think this is something that a lot of people on the party's uh, right and, 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 and indeed parts of the centre just sort of cannot, cannot stomach
3: So, obviously, the the Labour Party doesn't really have a right wing. It used to. The old industrial right, uh, the AU, they they don't really exist anymore. There's a a handful of people, really. The the Labour Party's got centre-left and further-left members. And the truth is, in the UK... To win in the first past the post-election, you need to unite the centre-left progressive forces. There may be people who think they'd rather not have um, me in the Labour Party, and there may be people who think they'd rather not have Nadia Whitam in the Labour Party. But those people are probably uh, in their 60s and 70s with final salary pensions, owning their own homes, which they bought in the 70s and 80s, people who face absolutely no problem in life. The point of the Labour Party is to make changes. To make changes, you need a couple of things. One is you need to win an election, and the other one is you need to have ideas. My worry about the Labour Party and its current uh, internal formation is that there are people who want to seek out uh, energy and new ideas and new people with the, only the purpose of crushing them. Uh, it's as if having new ideas and energy is an affront to the lazy thinking. Uh, of some people in the party and the truth is I don't agree with everything uh, that's going to be discussed at the world transformed but I also think that to say that everybody who goes to the world transformed is the same as Ken Loach is a form of insanity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: On this week's show Boris Johnson is banking on national insurance rises to fund social care. Will it work? Will he have a smoother ride than Theresa May and her dementia attacks? And as the 20th anniversary of 9-11 approaches, we'll discuss where we were, how we felt, and how the attacks have shaped the UK over the last two decades. Plus, on the extra bit for Patreon backers, new research shows how pro-Kremlin trolls flood Western media sites. We'll be talking about our experiences in the land of the trolls. And remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, you could do us a big favour by heading to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating in a mere second, and maybe a review too, if you have time. Apple pushes podcasts based on the reviews and ratings, so this is a great way to help the podcast. Another one is to support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Oh God What Now to find out about early ad-free episodes, merchandise, priority live show tickets, and exclusives like our new weekly spin-off, Oh God What Else. And thanks to our friends at Aston Microphones who've helped kit out the Oh God What Now studio with some of their excellent spirit mics, which look like Transformers faces. (laughs) You can now hear our high quality squabbling in even higher definition, which is a bonus for everyone. (laughs) If you're a budding podcaster and want to kit yourself out, visit AstonMics.com. First this week, on Tuesday Boris Johnson announced a 1.25 percentage point rise in national insurance contributions, i.e. a 10% increase, due to begin in April next year. The so-called health and social care levy will apparently raise £36 billion over the next three years. The plans also place a lifetime cap of £86,000 on the amount people will have to spend on their care, and anyone with less than £20,000 in assets will get their care for free. Alice, there's a lot to talk about. Um, the usual suspects are claiming that this makes Sunak a left-wing chancellor. <laughs> um, nobody on the left thinks that. Um, but, I mean, are there some Tories who are just enraged by any tax, tax rises who, who do think that perhaps he is a dangerous
1: socialist? Sunak's <laughs> about as left-wing as I'm an introvert, I think. Um, <laughs> no, he's not a left-wing chancellor, and the rates are not the thing and one of the uh, aspects of this debate that's being lost is that the rates are not the thing the complexity is the thing because what this does is adds a fourth layer of tax onto people's pay packet it's now the nhs the health and care levy it will be called it is complexity that favours the wealthiest always a true left-wing chancellor, the best thing they could possibly do is come in and simplify the tax system so that it's transparent and straightforward and everyone can see what everyone is paying in tax. The real subversion of the tax system is to keep adding these layers and keep projecting that, well, look, the richest 14%, I think the government was saying today, the richest 14% will be paying half of it. Why 14%? It seems a quite an arbitrary figure, isn't it? It's just they've just chosen the percentile where it begins to look good, basically. So then I go to an accountant, if I can afford an accountant, and I say, can you find me ways of paying less tax? And of course they can, because the more complex a system there is, the easier it is to evade that tax. It's so as simple as that. Uh, and with
0: this one, National Assurance is only uh, only goes up, according to income, up to £50,000, then it mm. plateaus. So that helps the relatively well-off, uh, as does the £86,000 cap. Many people, of course, will not be in a position to spend anywhere near that. Um, there's also something that the increase does cover
1: shared dividends, does apply to working pensioners. These were tagged on, by the way, yes. on, literally on the 11th hour because they were getting Looked so bad. much... Um, flag for it. They tagged on these things, nothing, they're trinkets. They raise almost no money whatsoever. Johnson keeps referring to the Institute for Fiscal Studies saying that national insurance is a a progressive tax. Uh, Paul Johnson from the Institute of Fiscal Studies tweeted today to say, can't agree this is the best way to raise funds, exempts nearly all all over pension age and those with rental and most other unearned incomes. Less progressive than increase in income tax or an effort to get some more money from wealth inheritance taxes.
0: One thing that struck me and it did actually surprise me is that 50% of social care users are under 65. And of course, a lot of young people paying this may feel that they're sort of funding, funding people older than their parents, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and feeling that money is being taken from them. I mean, should it be clearer that this just isn't about old age, like what social care means? I think people do tend to think of care homes.
1: I think it's useful to frame it as actually a levy that favours the wealthier over the poorer. I think that is the, the truest reflection of what it is, because it does. But the fact of the matter is that because of wealth distribution across the age brackets it is a tax that clobbers the youngest. Um, And not only that, we now have a generation coming out with huge debts from the university fees and that is an extra thing that's coming out of their pay packet. And someone sat down and calculated that a sort of entry-level young graduate, in an average salary for that age, will now be on a marginal rate of tax that's just under 50%. So we can try and dress it up as something that doesn't exclusively clobber the youngest, because it doesn't exclusively clobber the youngest, but it does clobber the youngest, just not exclusively. Um, Minnie, when you look at the
0: spending plans, this is most of it will be spent on reducing NHS waiting times. Uh, at the moment, the report I saw are only five point four billion on social care. So, is this a phony fix? Is this is this being missold?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's quite classic misdirection. Now, look, obviously, I don't agree with the method of raising the money, but five point four billion will go some way to fixing some of the problems, but as Alex said, you know, the thing with social care is that most people don't understand how it works. They don't know what it includes. I mean, maybe there's some understanding in the population now after the pandemic that a lot more people have vulnerabilities that, you know, might need have specific caring needs. But particularly, they find it difficult to understand that there is a whole problem that exists outside of the NHS that won't be resolved by investing in the NHS unless you're going to take quite radical steps. So, I personally would support an NHS style funding system for social care or to bring social care more firmly into the NHS, which would obviously cost more than £5.4 And I'm not going to pretend that I know how to fund that. But even with a, a, a less brave approach and keeping them separate, the funding still needs to grapple with things like staff shortages, health inequalities, and access to services. And I think the King's Fund estimated in 2019 that you would need nearly £8 billion just to provide the same access to services as in 2010. So it's really not even touching the tip of the iceberg.
0: So is this just the first tax hike, I suppose, the toe in the water? Because if it doesn't solve it, then there's going to have to be another one. It may be in the next parliament. Probably not before the next election.
2: Mm. Yeah, I can't imagine it would be before the next election. Um, <laughs> That'd be very game different. of them, wouldn't it? Just <laughs> yeah. announce a tax
0: hike Johnson in the manifesto. Johnson was pressed
1: on this in the the press conference that they did several times by several journalists. And all he could say is that he could give only an emotional commitment Those were his words. I can only give an emotional commitment that I won't raise taxes. I don't know what the fuck that means. Well, he's famous for his
0: emotional commitments to to the people in his life. Um, John, this breaks a manifesto pledge, so broadly speaking, not just about this one. How politically damaging is that? Should we see those pledges as as ironclad promises? Or should we expect that at some point in a five-year term, some of them will have to go you know, because of events. I'm just wondering how sort of damaging that is.
3: Breaking a promise is really a profoundly important moment for any politician. By and large, the public don't really have much of a way to distinguish politicians from each other. In the way they do the work, you know, you've got your promises in your manifesto, and you judge them and you weigh them. Lots of decisions in politics are made behind the scenes. They're made on issues that they probably don't know much about, maybe don't even care about. So promises go to judgment, and judgment goes to leadership, and leadership is the whole game. So you have a you have a prime minister who can't be straight about the number of children he has, and he's a prime minister whose word you can't trust, and you've got a prime minister. Who promised to be a low-tax prime minister, who is now a high-tax prime minister? But emotionally,
1: what? John, emotionally really? he's a low-tax one. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's
3: important. to point point. Worse than this is we still don't know the purpose. What we've been—we were told we we're going to have a social care reform. There is no proposition for reform. There's a proposition to spend two and a half billion pounds stopping people paying. So that's not new money. And another $3 over the next three years will be extra money into the system. Social care is about quality, and it's about skills, and it's about workforce, and it's about agency and autonomy and dignity uh, for users, for carers, for the families. And none of those have been touched upon. It's as if the government have no plan for that. And actually, that's the trap that everybody commenting on has fallen into. No one's actually said, what is social care at the moment, what needs to be changed? Um, and at the moment, social care, uh, I, I strongly believe social care should not be wrapped up into the National Health Service. It's social work services and care services are separate from health services and should be treated separately. They've been means-tested since 1948. Bevan set up as a means-tested service. That's a profound difference, but also they're different, driven by different professionals with completely different sets of qualifications. The people, who, the women, mainly women, the people who work in social care deserve better pay, better investment in them and parity of esteem. We also need to understand residential care is a dementia care service, increasingly a dementia care service. And dementia care is demanding and dementia care uh, is, a, is a growing need. A young woman born today, a, girl, a baby girl born today, is likely to live till she's 100 so she'll live until the the, the the 22nd century. But she also has a one in two chance of dementia because your chance of dementia grows uh, as, your, as your age goes up. That's part of the new welfare state we're building is dementia care, the care for the old, old. And we've been down this rabbit hole about who's paying and how and how. That, for me, is the poverty of the debate, the success of the government framing at the moment. But um The polls before the policy was announced looked okay for the Tories. The polls, the instant polls today suggest that the public don't actually, aren't actually that happy with this. And so the reason why Boris Johnson said he's emotionally still a low tax kind of guy is he understands the power of breaking a promise. And that is breaking an emotional bond. He's got to try to reforge an emotional bond in some way to kind of close the circle on, on breaking the promise.
0: So, John, when we've discussed Boris Johnson on the podcast before, um, we haven't come up with this idea that there's just a sort of impunity and that you get this in focus groups sometimes that just sort of his 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 dishonesty mm. is factored in. But, you, but you're saying that this is actually different and that you cannot just sort of break a pledge and offer a shoddy plan and then just kind of sort of sail on.
3: But, but, so po- political reputation, it goes in the same way that um, that character in Hemingway says. You know, how do you go bankrupt? Two ways, gradually, then rapidly. Political reputation goes gradually and then it collapses. So there's a lot of, of being banked on the fact uh, that things are priced in. And the truth is, things are priced in in politics until they're not. And when they're not, they go. That is the problem that Johnson has. So the, the question is, uh, all chances chance, right? All chances will take a chance. And whether it's in the, the uh, we've got, I've got friends who chances people who if they get away with it once they try it a second time most people if they get away with it once get really scared and never do it again so like this is the 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 character of the character of the prime minister is somebody who has chanced his arm all the way to the top why would he change now he's at the top he's not going to change the question is will the public's perception of him change and the thing is He wants to be Churchill. And I always say uh, to journalists, to colleagues in politics, the thing about Churchill is Churchill made one call in his career completely correct. He decided alone in his class, alone in his party, there was no deal to be done with Mr. Hitler. And then he beat him in the Second World War. And then the voters said, thank you and good night. So this is the issue. Nobody ever in politics gets thanked for what they did. And the Boris thing is he thinks he can be thanked for words, not actions, not just not even thanked for his actions, thankful how he talks, what he says. And in this case, you know, he promises leveling up and he is now going to level down incomes for everybody on universal credit. A thousand pounds a year. There's nobody in the country, not even highest earners in the country who wouldn't miss a thousand pounds a year if it's taken from them. Thousand pounds a year is really chunky. A really chunky piece of money. This is the issue. The words contrast with actions. Leveling up. He's actually leading to levelling down. This attempt to solve the NHS crisis, do we think waiting lists will be lower, or will be ended by the end of this parliament? Clearly the government don't think that because the ministers are forbidden from promising that. So we have a, a tax hike that's real, a broken promise that's real, two broken promises because the, the pension tri- triple lock was broken this year. Two broken promises are real to freeze finance that may not produce a result. And if that doesn't happen and there is a winter crisis and there is a continued problem with the NHS, they've accepted there are problems with the NHS. Once you open that box, you own the NHS's problems. And I think this is a big gamble, a really big gamble.
0: You mentioned this is a system that needs a dramatic rethink. Um, obviously, it's become a lot more of an issue uh, over the 11 years since Labour left office. How much did it factor into, into Labour's thinking when you know under Blair and Brown?
3: I mean, obviously the NHS factored into Labour thinking because uh, Labour prepared the ground really carefully with the Wantless Review for an increase in national insurance to put money into the health service. And Labour also brought in uh, freedoms for hospitals, elements of competition between uh, hospitals and uh, areas of private provision to increase capacity within the health service to actually deal with them uh, waiting lists. We came in with wh- waiting lists in terms of years, and we left with waiting lists uh, in terms of 16 weeks for waiting from from diagnosis to treatment. So Labour really focused reform and resources. We have here resources with no reform. That is a uh, major problem. In terms of social care, Labour got around to social care. Labour did create the General Social Services Council. Labour kept money going into the local government, expanded the amount of money in public services. That's one of the issues with social care. It's been starved. The health service has been starved for a decade. The local government has been absolutely, it's a famine for, mm-hmm. for, for, for resources there. That's why fewer people today are receiving social care than were 10 years ago, when the numbers of people needing it is higher. It was a, a central part of what a, a fourth-term Labour government would have done would have been uh, reforming social care. I don't fully agree with what Andy Burnham uh, proposed not least because in a kind of johnson-esque uh, style he said we need a national care service and then was really unspecific i went back to his document the other day to see what was that actually mean in terms of social care he was really he he, he wanted it to be free that was the kind of main thing okay make it free that just means you take on a burden of expenditure to the taxpayer and you don't change a single thing and that's probably a lot of the debate around this which is that people wanted to take over in some way the current system, therefore the cost of it, but not reconfigure it, not reshape it. And I think that debate about what is quality, how you provide it, uh, it's not and That really needs to be a, a part of this that's filled by NGOs, by the, by the, by the social, social work services and a whole range of other uh, contributors.
0: Well, this brings me to my final question to Alex and Minnie, even though Minnie specifically said that uh, she didn't have a plan uh, to pay for this. Um <laughs> Starmer has focused on the broken pledge the regressive nature of the taxation but people have pointed out that Labour should have its own plan to pay for social care. Where would either of you like to get the money from?
2: I mean I just think no focus on regressive taxation like taxation has to be progressive and there has to be tax reform and that's the only way that you can pay for stuff. <laughs> that's a very vague answer because I'm not completely... It's a very, very accurate person. answer.
0: <laughs> would, we like a, would you like a a wealth tax levy?
1: I would like to see inheritance taxed more strongly. I think it's a real blight on this country, actually. This capacity to pass on wealth that is unearned and largely untaxed, uh, I think it simply exacerbates uh, um, inequalities that are already there. I mean, if you look at these slates of measures comparing north to south, an MP stood up and said something that I hadn't fully thought about, but it is unarguable that if you set the limit at £86,000, you know, for someone in a northern town where the average price of a house is one hundred and fifty grand. And someone in a, you know, in a southern, southeast town where the average uh, value of a house is 450 grand, you're not fucking leaving them with the same mm. amount of money, are you? You're, you're taking 86 grand from each of them, potentially, and leaving one of them with 60 grand left and another one with 460 grand left. That isn't fairness,
3: but, but you've also got you've also got to consider that the eighty six thousand pound figure has been deliberately chosen as a cruel trick, because it's eighty six thousand pounds on the care costs, not the accommodation costs or the food costs, mm. so not the full thousand and a half pounds you spend you spend a week in a care home, a proportion of that, and that actually means it will take you know it, given the. the most people will not reach the £86,000 limit in my, in, in my guesstimate. So actually, people are believing that they'll get free care, which they won't get. Um, and so there's a bit of this which is a bit of a con trick. And I, 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 take, I take what you're saying about the, the, the wealth assets, but you, you, again, it's dri- being driven down a particular rabbit hole. We need to stand back and go, should we be taxing work or taxing wealth? And if we think we should be building a modern welfare state by taxing wealth more... Because if you look at the way that that, um, when I started working in the the first part in the 70s, national insurance was 5.75%. It's now, I've got a variety of levels, but it's it's rising uh, to over 13 13 pence in the pound. That's a substantial shift onto that element of it. Income tax has fallen, and taxes in other areas, such as housing, where wealth has accrued unearned, so the debate needs to be about how do we capture the value uh, of housing? And is some of that going to be through a reform of local government finance, which would be fairer if local, fi- if local councils are going to be providing social care services? Uh, but that goes to the power of local authorities as well as the voice and the, vo- the, vocal, the, you know, the vocal voice uh, of homeowners and the kind of political settlement we're ending up with, which is a debt burden for young people, where it's almost certain that the comprehensive spending review and the, and the following budget are going to lower the income level at which you start having to pay back your student loans. So that'll be another tax hike for young people. There's a lot of moving parts in this, but the fundamental one is tax wealth, not work. And actually, young people should vote, which they don't do, and they should get their, their, par- their parents and their grandparents to vote in the interests of their children and grandchildren not in the interests of some notional uh, inheritance.
0: Next, this Saturday marks 20 years since the September the 11th attacks, and we are still living with some of the consequences. Uh, I want to start by asking everyone to briefly share their memories. Minnie, do you remember where you were and what you initially thought?
2: I do. I was in school. I was in year eight. Um, so I I didn't hear about it until I came out of school. And my mum had actually had some kind of knee surgery. So she was at home and was watching the news as it was all happening live. So I kind of got a second hand account from her. And I think I was maybe too young to kind of understand the, all of the implications at the time. And I remember thinking, God, this is really bad. A lot of people have died. And really scary. But what I do vividly remember is that a lot of people in my community were telling each other, be careful, don't go outside, especially not if you wear a scarf. And there was a definite sense of kind of fear in the Islamic community. Obviously, Birmingham is quite diverse. And I don't think I necessarily felt any direct impacts, didn't experience any kind of racism, but I do know a lot of stories anecdotally around that time, which is the kind of biggest takeaway for me.
0: I mean, and obviously Islamophobia existed before then, and there are different components to it. How, I mean, it's very difficult to do the counterfactual here, but how how much of a part do you think um, 9-11 and its aftermath sort of plays
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely tie the roots of the current version of Islamophobia to um, 9-11. What I have read or been told about uh, is prior to 9-11, the racism was in a way much more uh, simple. It was more to do with kind of directly the colour of your skin and to do with difference and misunderstanding. And in terms of kind of integration, I don't really like that phrase, but in terms of integration, we were a lot closer to the acceptance of an existing British Muslim population that actually belonged here. And after 9-11, You had a population, the the general population, that was basically told, be afraid of Muslims, be wary, look for suspicious behaviour, which was based on stereotypical identifiers. And at the same time, you also had the state increasingly policing the Muslim population, which fed into this kind of loop of mistrust and fear and the, the idea that Muslims just don't have a place, don't belong here, can be removed from here. And then I think after that, you know, the slurs and the violence kind of changed. Calling a Muslim a terrorist or insinuating that the religion is inherently violent or cruel is now an established form of racism that exists outside of skin colour. And I think the roots are basically there.
1: Alex, what are your memories? Um, I was working at the Office of Fair Trading at the time. We had a big uh, press release coming up. I don't even remember what it was for, but we were upstairs in the press office and it had this sort of glass meeting room in the middle of the press office. And the wall behind me was uh, filled with massive flat screens that had all the news feeds on you have to remember how unusual those big flat screens were at the time never mind a whole wall of them and suddenly the color drained from the face of everyone that was sitting on the other side of the table who could see the flat screens out of the glass and we all turned around and so that they were all showing the same footage of the the tower, smoke billowing from the tower. And time compressed weirdly. I don't know how much time went by, but as we were watching and more and more people started gathering in the press suite because it had the screens and the news, um, the second plane flew into the other tower. And it was, I think, at that point that everyone knew that it, this
3: wasn't some
1: horrible accident.
0: John, what were you doing?
3: I was um, attending a meeting of the Scottish Cabinet, Scottish Government Cabinet. I was uh, head of policy for the Scottish Government at the time, and I actually that morning picked up keys to a new house I was moving into um, in Edinburgh with my family. I walked along Queen Street. I turned up at Butte House on Charlotte Square for the for the meeting of the Scottish Cabinet. Then we found out the plane had flown into the the Twin Towers. So I actually spent. I didn't attend cabinet that day. I spent the I spent a lot of time drafting the words for the motion that the Scottish Parliament passed uh, that day in, in, in marking the uh, passing commiserations, obviously from the Scottish Parliament, and marking the uh, the act of the act of terror.
0: And and how quickly did the government grasp some of the implications, like the fact that there would be military. Uh, action taken by by the US, like obviously everybody was just shocked on a human level, but like how quickly were people processing like what this could mean uh,
3: politically? So the, the Scottish government obviously aren't involved in in foreign affairs, but it was obvious from uh, colleagues in Number Ten this was going to be an invocation of the Article Five, uh, the NATO treaty. Therefore, uh, NATO troops would be involved because once George Bush made. Uh, President Bush made the speech where he said that they would seek out the terrorists, they seek out the, and that those who harbour terrorists would be the enemy. Then it was very clear, and I think I don't know what we knew about what the implications were in terms of mm. where British troops would be going alongside NATO troops. We knew there would be military action uh, arising from this because this was. And then obviously there's the Tony Blair spoke to the uh, the TUC um he uh, it, had to rip up a speech and, and write, write a completely new one and so the, the fact that politics were, was changing the you know the symbol of globalization the 747 being flown into another symbol of globalization the twin towers something world historical was happening and so no, nothing was going to be the same after that
0: i remember very clearly sort of stages of, of sort of comprehension because i was meant to be i was at the mercury music prize Mm. where they were setting up and I was meant to be interviewing super fairy animals and I was mm. waiting for them downstairs and a security guard just mentioned our oh, planes flown into the twin towers and I remember him just going bloody American pilots you know just like mm-hmm. it was an accident and then because of various things like no phone signal and waiting mm. for the interview I was sort of downstairs and out of it for the second plane and the collapse until basically I heard it collapse then went up and sort of saw the aftermath in the hotel bar everybody was stunned and so the the lack of comprehension like the fact that the first plane people didn't go oh it's an attack it's like oh it's a terrible accident and i wondered whether Minnie. i mean you you are old enough to remember it and i think there are there are people obviously who who aren't frighteningly young people out there on the streets um <laughs> And I think perhaps in order to understand what happened next, you need to appreciate just how shocking and unprecedented it was. Things like, I remember it being ported, where Flight 93 was headed, Mm. you know, Capitol or or the White House. Mm. Do you think that that is sort of hard to convey to people who do not remember the actual event, remember all these many terrible things that spiraled out of it, and that it's hard to actually convey the shock of something happening that had not happened before?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a little bit conflicted about this, because obviously, you can't really know what it was like before. And even to an extent, I don't really understand what it was like before, but I understand quite well, all the changes afterwards. I think 9-11 is just so unbelievably well documented in the way that other terrorist attacks or even other atrocities are just not documented. You know, it's covered so heavily in in pop culture, in film, in pretty much every form of media and art. You know, there was a recent um, series on Amazon. There's a brand new film on Netflix. Don't think you can watch an American sitcom without reference to it. So I feel like the enormity of it is definitely quite easy to understand. And I'm not saying that that everyone is an expert, but I think this is as close as the general population can get to understanding an event without actually being there. And I can't really think of another example where that would be the case.
0: John, I mean, there's so much to talk about. Without getting into, I mean, obviously, Iraq is a whole other discussion, really. Do you feel that, I mean, obviously, Blair at the time felt that he was... Felt that he was rising to the occasion, felt that he was he was doing the right thing. How? And then other things happened. How much do you think Iraq and maybe to a lesser extent, Afghanistan derailed his prime ministership, the the new Labour project? A lot of the time, if you talk to people now, that's the thing that you say, Tony Blair, they say Iraq. But how much do you think that it just kind of like changed everything for what Labour
3: is trying to do? Invading Afghanistan was unavoidable. It was ungoverned territory, which was usable by Al Qaeda as a base for launching terrorist attacks. The Taliban government weren't handing over AQ, so therefore uh, there had to be the invasion. There's no doubt that that was a- inevitable. My own view uh, about the Iraq War is, it's, is it was a, it's a separate. War. It was a war in defense of the United Nations weapon inspectors uh, a reg- a, when regimes can refuse to allow access to uh, the weapon inspectors you get to a bad you get to a bad point we have since explored every other possibility that was a an invasion we've tried ignoring the gassing of civilians in Syria, just ignoring, not doing anything about it at all. Consequence of that is Brexit, humanitarian crisis, millions of refugees, uh, half the population of Syria displaced. Not intervening is not an answer. We see that in Syrian failure. And the kind of strange uh, hybrid um, sort of intervention, military intervention with no boots on the ground in Libya has been a total disaster too. So I don't think there's any easy answer. And the the irony for me of the debate around Afghanistan was... The terms in which Tom Tugendhat and most of the Conservative Party and a large number of commentators of, of all political positions uh, criticised Joe Biden, whose actions in withdrawing I actually support, but the terms in which Joe Biden was criticised was in terms of the terms of liberal interventionism. It was why aren't we there for women's rights? Why aren't we there for preserving girls in education? Why aren't we there for preserving civil society? Tony's reputation will always have Iraq as part of the definition. It will also have the normal peace process. As part of the definition, the government was knocked off its electoral journey, won a third victory in a row, a row after Iraq, narrowly lost in, in, in 2010. Yet Gordon Brown would have won in 2007 had he had the snap election. So we could be in a completely different situation. It's a retrospective view of the Blair government to look at only Iraq and not the, the social policy achievements. But it's also interesting that... The terms of debate around Afghanistan have been completely now in Tony Blair's Blair's terms. There are very few pragmatic foreign policy uh, positions being held. and Very few people said this is simply a return to the Treaty of Westphalia, simply a return to a situation where you don't have countries invading other countries. Sort out they're, they're, because of social injustice in those countries, that is for countries to have their own histories. So it's a, it's very interesting that the idealistic side of Tony, which he took into foreign policy, has become the general way of British discussion of it. So the, the legacy is very complicated in my view.
0: Alex, just to go back to the to the immediate aftermath, a couple of days mm. afterwards. Mary Beard wrote this kind of famous piece, the London Review of Books, said many people thought the United States had it coming and that world bullies, even if their heart is in the right place, will in the end pay the price. In The Guardian, Seamus Milne wrote a piece called They Can't See Why They Are Hated uh, and said the Americans are once again reaping a dragon's teeth harvest they themselves sowed. Neither piece went down uh, well. No, really? <laughs> yeah. Because um, we're literally talking one or two days. Do you think the arguments, that those arguments were, were just flat wrong or was it more the timing and that if you if you made those arguments you know, weeks,
1: months later, uh, they would not have had that response. Okay, so I'll tackle the second thing first. The timing was definitely wrong. I mean, it's not just wrong, it's idiotic. You know, the the fact that you have a comment on someone's legacy doesn't mean that it's okay to go and shout it at their relatives at at the wake. You have to have a sort of filter that says now is not the right time you say, I told you so. Um, whether the argument is right or wrong, I mean, I went back and read both those things, and they make some good points and some not so good ones. Mm. So I don't think either of them is wholly right or wholly wrong. I think it's fair to say, to observe, without justifying anything, to observe that in in a time of globalization, you can no longer limit conflicts to a land far away and and say that oh i can have a little war there and it's not going to affect me because it can and i think that is actually a decent lesson to try and learn that the more interconnected we are the more the more we have an interest actually in stability in faraway places and going back to what john was saying i think that justifies now that slightly more uh, um, paternalistic view of saying that there may be merit to going and encouraging different values in a faraway place. But the point that 9-11 in retrospect historically makes is that what you cannot guarantee is that your home population will be completely insulated from any hostile action from the other
0: side? It's, it's rather complicated. I looked up uh, the motives, the Bin Laden's expressed motives, mm. which, do, which include the ones that perhaps Seamus Bild will notice objecting to troops stationed in Saudi Arabia. also includes the creation of Israel, which must be erased, and immoral acts of fornication, homosexuality, intoxicants, gambling, and trading with interest. Oh, well, we like those. So there was a range... Of motives, and I suppose that was my problem. That there is, there is a, there is a sense that, uh, from an anti-war position, one one chooses the motives that one can understand. Yes, absolutely. The mistreatment, the sense of injustice. But that's been a pattern, and not the kind of theocratic
1: yeah but that's been a pattern ever since we've discussed it on this podcast many many times how global events come along and suddenly they seem to vindicate precisely the view of every columnist that had written about anything loosely related to them because you're only looking at a tiny sliver of the issue that justifies your argument but you know it was big I mean, for a man, that for a young man that looked like I did in London at the time, let me tell you, it was fucking big. I was stopped at every tube station if I was holding a gym bag. Mm-hmm. I was searched, and, and after 7-7, and after uh, uh, Jean-Charles de Menezes as well, who basically got shot several times in the head just for looking a bit swarthy, it was... A very different world in which to live, where I expected to be taken to the back room of, uh, you know, a border force when I arrived at any country. And so it changed everything.
3: But equally, after 7-7, the number of uh, informants sources, secure service sources within the Muslim community in Britain increased fivefold that there was a distinct change within the community seeking to work with security services to expose uh, the, the, the networks of radicalization. So there were more than one thing was going on at the time. on Cresta Crestedic should be sacked at that point. Uh, she should never have been allowed to become a commissioner of the Metropolitan Police from that point. She shouldn't have been a police officer from that point. And that, uh, that set a pattern for her of behavior which which has carried right through to the extraordinary suppression of the um, uh, the, the clap and peaceful demonstration, I uh, wish all the peace with uh, with that woman and her and her and her leadership but I know it's a different different subject but
0: the more that we talk about this, the more I realize it's basically. Should be like an hour long. Uh, special <laughs> it discussion. Everywhere.
3: It goes everywhere.
0: But because I mean, it does. It's so transformative. Anyways, the effects mm. on sort of on, on splits within the within the left, mm. the effects mm. on Muslim community. I mean, it's on and on and on. Many. Mm. Well, there's one that I wanted to bring up that 9/11 gave birth to the most popular conspiracy theory since since JFK, which is the Beatles of conspiracy theories. Do you think that's where the sort of the current epidemic? Of conspiracy theory sort of begins, that it was just such an, a colossal event, and that when colossal things happen, a certain number of people are just going to reach for esoteric explanations.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just I just think that conspiracy theories have literally always been around in some format, in, in whether they're at a very low bar or whether they're a, a big thing and a big event sparks it. I just think that the likelihood that you'll fall into some kind of conspiracy theory wormhole is much higher because of the way that we access information and because they have just a far bigger reach. I mean, if you just think about like tiny little conspiracy theories that were at school. So for example, there was a really random conspiracy theory when I was at school that sunny delight was made of pig semen. And so no one wanted to drink it. Like a <laughs> stupid, stupid thing. I mean, it's quite possible that it wasn't vegetarian. I've never actually looked it up. But nowadays, if you had that kind of spark of a conspiracy theory, it would blow all the way up and it would grow and it would grow and people would begin to say things like, you know, the makers of Sunny Delight are working for Hillary Clinton and trying to exterminate the population. And it would just spread because of the way that we access information and they can cross international borders much more easily, be read by millions of more people. And it's just much harder to differentiate truth and fact. So, I think it's more a product of the time that we're in, rather than a product of the specific event.
0: And it makes a really good point, of course, which is worth remembering that, that we did not have social media. Yeah, that we did not. It was not mediated through Twitter. Nine Eleven. Mm-hmm. It was, it was also, through it, television. It's
3: also That's interesting. True. We've got access to far, many more sources, which, if we, if people were sceptical, would we enable them to unravel conspiracy theories. Actually the net is kind of, it's polarized, it's full of conspiracy theories, but also full of the evidence, that if you search for it, would say, well, I'm not sure that stacks up. So, I mean, Sunny D is, um, actually, is actually vegan. Um, <laughs> I guess. The, the thing is, we do now have a deliberate desire by foreign actors to use disinformation to make us distrust our institutions. And democracy itself, uh, there's a very thin line between skepticism and cynicism, And that is the thing which is sought to be exploited by those who, you know, the the Russians have a state enterprise to under. They don't want to bring down Western democracy. They want to muddy it up so that some people can doubt it and and question it. The conspiracy theory helps in a complicated world to give a simplified solution, and that is one of the the, that's one of the issues about twenty four seven media and multi channel media is. A very compelling, simple solution can get around the world quickly and type, you know, type one and type two thinking it quite often takes type two thinking to explain why a conspiracy theory doesn't work. The word plandemic is, is a genius coinage because it, it, it kind of it tells you everything you need to know about the idea and... You get, it, you get it in one um, hit and then you move off.
0: Well, well John's <laughs> just given us a bit of a, a little trailer for the extra bit where we were talking about disinformation. That's true. We're disinformation. talking about reality. Um, But, yes, there's a lot more that we could say uh, about the legacy of 9-11, um, but we'll have to leave it there because it's time for Overrated Underrated, where each week we separate the Jet Fuels Can't Melt Steel beams from the Sunny Delight Contains Pig semen. <laughs> <laughs> this week, it's the turn of Mini Ramen. What do uh, you have?
2: I mean, I feel like my choice is now very flippant compared with the context (laughs) of this podcast, but maybe that's a good thing. This is just a personal pet peeve, really. My overrated this week is just extortionately priced fancy cinemas, including like Mm. outdoor cinemas, and I just don't enjoy this whole, oh, pay for this really expensive seat and I'll bring you in a tiny microscopic pizza, Mm. um, as compared with my underrated, which is just Proper old school, rough cinemas like mm-hmm. uh Peck and Plex or there's like an Odeon in Birmingham city centre, mm-hmm. which the joy of just watching a film in a not fussy seat with lots of other people who are openly enjoying it because there's not a kind of like, you know, an atmosphere where you're not allowed to breathe. They're, they're just, I just think the joy of that is completely underrated and I encourage people.
0: They've even made Holloway Odeon fancy now. <laughs> I yeah, love Peckhamplex.
1: What, <laughs> Peckhamplex is like one of my favourite places in the world. You need
0: slightly disconcerting carpets, don't you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: You get and special
1: really features. You get you get audience commentary throughout. Which the is the Peck best way amazing. to watch things.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure if Ian was here he would completely disagree <laughs> with um, <laughs> the concept of talking through a film, but I just think that's the best thing ever.
0: <laughs> Ian would probably want cocktails,
2: <laughs> and cheese
0: boards, all kinds of stuff. Now it's time for But Your Emails this week. Um, this, keeping on the incredible levity <laughs> this podcast has descended into. Francis Clarke asks, as someone who is still recovering from the excitement of Amber returning, who would the panel like to see resurrected in perpetuity as motion-captured avatars, which is like a hologrammy kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, from musical politics, what would you pay to see Robin Cook or Jeffrey Howe's resignation speeches? Alex, who would you like to sort of reanimate in, well, a, in ob- a purpose-built London venue?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> obviously, I'm. Uh, um, Very in the now at the moment. So what I would like to see is all the various versions of Boris Johnson sort of (laughs) fighting with each other. (laughs) You know, Boris Johnson in front of the digger, Boris Johnson driving the digger, complaining about national insurance. Flying Boris Johnson. Increasing national insurance, promising a thing, going back on the promise. It's just, he's so... Um, incredibly inconsistent that animating Boris Johnson from all his various periods and making him just fight it out to see which Boris Johnson survived. So the Johnsons. Yes. It's the band. The, the Johnson Five. Yes, a sort of Hunger Games but only with Boris Johnson. Johnsons. Um, John.
3: Uh, I'd love to see the Sex Pistols back together again. So, And that will have to only be done uh, virtually because they can't be in the same room with each other. And Sid, obviously, sadly is dead. Minnie?
2: I mean, I think I have two very different ones. Spice Girls in their full, the full <laughs> cohort, obviously. Right. Posh Spice has to come back for it. And then Guns N' Roses, because they well, would be bloody amazing if they were back together. And I, I don't know if any of them are dead. Maybe some of them are.
3: Which is extraordinary as well. It's a tribute to American uh, health services. <laughs> Cons-
0: considerably less fun, uh, Minnie, from from the world of politics. Is there anyone you reanimate there?
2: No, I don't want to bring anyone back or look at any of them ever again. Is my basic. Is there
0: anyone you on that? I suppose I was thinking only of politics, not music, because music it would be Otis Redding, right? Well, um, hmm. Who died before I was born, so literally no chance to see him live. From politics, I don't know. Not like I suppose I'd like to see you know like classic debates. Yeah, <laughs> classic debates like you know the Norway debate or something. I bet with holograms we- as opposed to those freaky animatronics <laughs> that you get yeah, that were no. popular in the eighties. There was a terrifying Canterbury Tales exhibition in Canterbury, which is re- only recently shut down. And there were these just like, in the 80s, probably quite cool, now horrifying,
1: just Yes, it's awful, so. Listen, there's don't, animatronics.
3: They're so frightening. So I now. don't
0: want animatronic Chamberlain and Churchill, <laughs> but maybe a more sort of smoother high-tech version.
3: Having, having Burke or Payne back, Tom Payne or Burke back, to comment on modern politics... Some of that kind of intellect and austerity and acerbic wit, I think, you know, but it's seeing the old politicians back, not so much.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. And that's the show. Thank you so much to Minnie.
2: Thanks, everyone.
0: Alex. Thank you for having me. And our guest, John McTernan.
3: Thank you very much for having me. It's been great fun.
0: On the extra bit for Patreon backers, we're going troll hunting as we discuss the influx of Russian fake profiles and provocateurs on Western newspaper comment sections and social media. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demonism Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers.
1: Hello, and thanks from me to Evelyn Peel, Michael Walker, Charlotte Yates, Kasia Piotrowska Barrett, John Fuller, and proving that the best way to get a Patreon backer is to invite them on the show as a guest, Matthew Dancona.
2: Hello from me, and a big thanks to Fred Whelan, Susan. Tim Castorina, Robin Lismore, Susie Kang, Suzanne Hart and John.
0: And thanks for meeting Natasha House, Alex Holden, Justin Johnston-Tackey, James McDade, Adam Payne, Tom Phillips and Billionaire with a Secret, Bruce Wayne. <laughs> oh God, what now? <clears throat> was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreou and
3: Minnie Rahman. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelna Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Rees. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? Is a Podmasters production.
0: This week on The Extra Bit, research from Cardiff University has found that pro-Kremlin accounts are targeting the comment section of news websites in the West from Mail Online to Fox News and Der Spiegel. Alex, the first time I spotted, I was aware of Russians in comment sections, Mm -hmm. was when I was asked to write a kind of light-hearted piece about Vladimir Putin. In And someone replied in Cyrillic. In 2011. (laughs) Do you remember when he sang Blueberry Hill? That him no. sang Blueberry Hill by Fat Oh, Stomino. let's reanimate that. I'm on Blueberry <laughs> Hill. It was like a very bizarre thing. And so The Guardian went, end of the year, round up, just do something funny no, from no. a sort of music critique. And there were lots of comments, very disapproving. And I was like, this is really weird. Like, I don't normally see this many comments. It was the first time that I was aware that this was a thing. You know, obviously, 2016, we all sort of found out about it. Do you remember the first time that you spotted some somebody
1: where you just thought, oh, this is actually part of a kind of a state? So I remember thinking that um, it was weird how every time I replied to James O'Brien, I was suddenly inundated with these people who had very few followers, very recently created thousands of tweets in the space of a couple of months, um all of them, with long numbers after a name, all of them supported nationally some um English premiership club, and all of them said basically very similar things, using Americanisms, using mistakes in the language that actually an an- an uneducated British person wouldn't make. There were mistakes in idiom if that makes sense. How it hang fellow Americans <laughs> yes, how it hang um, <laughs> Uh, and, and and but obviously I can't can't prove any of that, and there and there's always the suspicion that it might just be some sad person in a basement that has fifty. And that was
0: a trailer for the bonus edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as two pounds a month. It really does help us keep going, and you also get access to our new weekly mini cast, oh God, what else? Every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week we